Good afternoon to all our listeners and welcome again to the Educational Dialogue Show. I am Dr. Sharice Roper, affectionately known as Dr. Reese. And I am Karen Paysinger. And again, this is the Educational Dialogue Podcast. And we wanna thank you for joining in and being a part of this educational movement. Our goal for this show is to elevate the conversation with all, in all of our communities and especially historically underserved populations in support of providing all of our listeners with the tools and the strategies, <clears throat> excuse me, needed to level up the educational system, as well as ourselves regarding issues that are important to all of us. We know that knowledge is power and education touches everything. Karen and I have worked in the field for many years and have seen it all. As students head back to school to, in the few weeks coming, we hope to provide you with tools and strategy to help navigate educational terrain at all educational levels. We have invited two very special guests on our show today, Ms. Alexis Coleman, founder of Urban Scholars Academy in Inglewood, California, and Ms. Christiane Townsend, who is an educational leader and a strong advocate for educational excellence, parent advocacy, and instructional leadership. But before we begin our dialogue with today's guests, we'd like to share a few facts specific to how students are academically doing today, especially in California. The most recent national report card that we have looked at, Karen and I have been doing a lot of research and we have found that this past school year, reading scores for students in fourth and eighth grade demonstrate that California students scored lower than eight states and jurisdictions, including Florida, Wyoming, Massachusetts, and schools that are within our military forces. We also found that students scored higher than only six states, including New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Washington, DC, amongst a few others. And lastly, what I think was most surprising to Karen and my, myself is that we did not necessarily find any other schools that uh, we significantly scored higher than. So we, with 37 other states, including Mississippi, Tennessee, Nevada, and a few, and many others, are all in the same kind of uh, range, if you will. And so Karen, I know you had a few thoughts and comments that you wanted to share today. Uh, before we get into the big conversation, as we think about reading and literacy for our students, especially as we move into this new year, because our goal is to bring up the conversation to help us to finally get to a place where we feel like we are thriving and we are being successful academically. Karen, take it away. Well, um, thank you for that information. So I'm going to give you... Um, some specific information about um, our African-American students. And so 
in the 2018-2019 school year, about 10.5% of our African-American kindergartners met the reading readiness benchmark. The proficiency rate for African-American students in eighth grade language arts was about 36.9% in 2019. So now we are, we are still in COVID, not as bad as it was, um, you know, everything is opened up and we, we are kind of sort of back to normal, but COVID is still here. But uh, during that time, it affected um, our African-American students uh, um, in, a, in a pretty big way. So in 2019-2020 school year, about 56% of our, our African-American students were ready for core instruction. But by 2020, 2021, that number dropped to 30%. Wow. Um, and then we are, as you mentioned, students are uh, returning to school. Um, you know, we always, uh, as educators, talk about the summer slide. Um, and it is real. It's not just talk. It does exist. It does happen. And so according to Scholastic, Scholastic did some research in that, and they said that um, children lose about 1.5 or one and a half months of reading and two months of math over the summer. And that it generally takes teachers approximately three to four weeks, if not longer, to reteach skills that they, uh, that they learned the previous year. And so then the last statistic that I, I want to leave you with is we know that, and it's not really a statistic, just, just something that we as educators know, and you know, we want to provide the information uh, to our viewers, is that we know that low level of literacy is not a direct determinant of a person going to prison, but correctional and judicial professionals have long recognized that there is a connection between poor literacy, dropout rates, and crime. So I know Dr. Reese, that was that was a little heavy. That was, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right, that, right. You know, to to get started with. So, what other pearls of wisdom do you have to give us? And I just want our listeners and our guests to know that. Uh, Karen and I, we just want to lay it all out because we are really thinking about how to change the trajectory. We really honestly, at the end of the day, we're kind of a little sick and tired of the same old results and the same conversations that have been had over the, the, all the years that we've been in education. And so we're looking for ways and we know that our guests are going to share some things with us too. Um, about how to really change the trajectory. Did you know that on August the 8th, today's August 8th, <laughs> on August the 8th in 1863, Andrew Johnson, Tennessee military governor, who later became the 17th president of the United States, he freed enslaved people, some of which were his illegitimate children on this day in 1863. And this date became known as Emancipation Day. And Karen and I, we, we looked at that and we talked about, have we really been emancipated when we really think about ourselves educationally, right? 
Or are we still in the same, what is the word I'm looking for? The same slump, the same, 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 right? So we really wanted to um, begin this year with looking at um, solutions, at looking that, at those things that really would make a change. And we know that the system is something that we have to dig into and, and, and deal with as well. And we're not asking Ms. Townsend and, and Ms. Coleman to uh, necessarily change the system, but I know that you have some things that you'd like to share with us. And are you also aware that there is an active movement in our country to create a narrative suggesting that Black people learning our own history in public schools is decisive? In other words, Black studies should be not, they're saying that Black studies should not be permitted in our country. And you know, as well as I know, that it never ends with just one group of people, right? One, we take away one group, and then what they're learning or what they can and can't learn. And then the next thing we have another group and the next thing we have another group. And so Karen, um, I know you wanna add one more thing before we get to our guests. Well, I do because, you know, all of this that's going on about, um, you know, I, to me, it's almost like erasing our history. I always say that parents, are their child's first teacher. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, those who are in power in certain places, they can decide on um, what uh, our children can and cannot learn. But what they, what, what they cannot do is tell me or other parents what I can teach my child at home. So that's why it is important that we teach our history to our children. I, you know, regardless of um, your race, religion, whatever, it's important that our history be taught from home. We can't always rely on others as, as we are witnessing now. So we have to be proactive um, um, with that. And, and that's something that I'm personally doing um, with the, my own son. So. It starts with us. It starts with us and it ends with us. Right, right, right. And we talk all the time about it. It's past time for us to just do what we have to do. We all have to do our own part and we can't rely on everybody else to do it for us. That's right. That's right. 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 Because it, it's it's clear that there are some who don't want to do for us, you know, even if it benefits them. So, but with that being said, let's hear from our guests, uh, Miss Mrs. Christiane Townsend, Mrs. Alexis Coleman, and so Christiane, please share a little bit about yourself uh, uh, with our listeners. Okay, um, so thank you for having me. First off, um, I'm feel honored to be a part of this discussion. So just a little bit about my background. I'm a, um, a UCLA graduate. I minored in African-American studies, majored in English literature. Um, I also got my credential through the Center X program at UCLA, which is what brought me here. So um, during my time as a student, and even during my time as an educator, being an advocate for our students, um, particularly our black and brown students has been at the forefront of, of everything that I've done in education. 
So um, I've not only served as a teacher in the classroom, but I've also been an administrator. I've held a position as an instructional coach. I've been a principal, assistant principal, and I uh, founded a school, uh, actually an elementary school in East LA. Um, and that school did focus on project-based learning, focused on empowering students, and focused on providing culturally relevant curriculum. Wow. Thank you. Quite a great resume there. Thank you. Oh, is it my turn? Oh, hi, I'm Alexis Coleman. Uh, Thank you guys for having me today. Let's see. So um, I began my journey at Howard University, got my undergraduate and graduate degree, African-American studies, master's degree in curriculum and instruction. Uh, Moved to Los Angeles 2006, uh, began my teaching career for LAUSD. Um, During my time as an educator, I also did a lot of community outreach initiatives to make sure that student populations had access to community resources. Um, And out of that, I started with my husband, a nonprofit called Urban Scholar Academy 2012. Um, Basically, we provide after-school support for students of color um, year-round. The organization has grown from 14 to having served over 700 students, kinder through 12th grade. Um, right now, nonprofit is based in Inglewood. Uh, we do year-round programming, tutorial support. Uh, we've done about 14,000 tutoring sessions, a homework club where we support about 50 students from 19 schools every day, as well as we have a film class for high school students in addition to seasonal camps. So my focus uh, right now, my educational journey is making sure that we're able to provide quality structured after-school support for students, particularly African-American students, to help mitigate uh, that achievement gap. Wow, just like Ms. Mrs. Townsend, quite an impressive resume. We knew that when we were looking for who we could uh, invite to speak with us today, that you two were the exact people who needed to be here. Yes, yes. Thank you. <laughs> so thank you again for coming. As both of you know, school is about to begin in just like a week or so, a couple of days or so. Um, And we know that, um, especially based on the statistics that we've shared and the things that we talked about at the top of the hour, that you would have some thoughts and some ideas around best practices especially for teachers um, as students are coming back to school. I remember as a teacher um, being so nervous those first few weeks before school was gonna start because I wanted to make sure that everything was just right and in place for the kids and and especially wanted to make sure that they felt, I think, welcomed, mm-hmm. right? That they saw themselves in, their, in that classroom. So what are some things that you would want to provide Um, teachers first around supports and things that would help to make the the school start right for the students who are getting ready to come and enter into their classrooms. Uh, We'll start with Ms. Townsend. (laughs) I started last time, so I was going to see if Ms. Coleman wanted to start. So I would recommend, um, and what I do as as a teacher is definitely making sure that the room is colorful, even if it isn't 
upper grade classroom, making sure that it's colorful, making sure that we have a space in the classroom to do our community circle, making sure that you're checking in with students before they come in. So, you know, the good morning, what's your number? You know, the number being one from a cloudy day to five being bright and sunny. And then if anyone is below a three, I just kind of have them step to the side. And I just have a quick dialogue with them before we come into the classroom. So like you were saying, Dr. Reese, um, just making them feel like this is their classroom. You know, they're coming into a welcoming space or coming into a space where they're going to be heard. And I truly believe, uh, I think it was John Wooden or somebody who said, if they don't trust you, they you can't teach them, you know. And so I really want to create that climate of caring and safety when they come in. So when I uh, put my classroom together, one of the first things they see is the calm corner. And it's, 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 uh, in the, you know, it's kind of a ways they can have it to themselves. So they know they have a place where they can go, um, you know, to gather themselves and have that time um, with themselves. Um, so as a teacher, I would strongly recommend that um, in terms of starting the school year. And I heard you mention uh, community circles. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that for those who may not be aware of what community circles looks like and what it is? Okay, so um, a community circle, I always have a carpet in my classroom. And what we do is we come together as a class and you keep it consistent, um, no, a minimum of one time per week. And so we come together in the morning and we sit down and we open our circles. So we typically uh, open up with the norms you know, of the circle, like what you say stays in the circle and honoring the talking piece, which is the piece people hold when they're talking, which means only that person can speak. Um, we have a topic we can go around and share. If a student doesn't feel comfortable sharing, they can say pass, but it's just our time to come together as a class and uh, just kind of be together and, and talk. And then other kids, the kids in the class can take note of anything they hear um, in the circle, they can always, hey, you know, congratulations on that game you said you won, or, oh, I'm sorry your cat is sick, or whatever the student shared. It's just another way for the kids to build a bond and another way for me to um, get to know the kids better. And I share in the circle as well. You know, I share out whatever. If I'm saying, what did you do this weekend? I share something I did this weekend. So it makes me more human, <laughs> you know, to them as well. And Christiane, is this something that can be done? Um, is this only for like elementary? Is this something that can be done with our secondary students? I think it can be done with secondary. I tried this uh, in the middle school when I taught seventh grade. Mm -hmm. um, it worked in seventh grade. Uh, high schoolers, it was a little bit different. We didn't sit on the carpet, <laughs> but we did, you know, have a discussion you know, where um, you post something to the class and we, we talk about ourselves as people and not just as students and teacher. Mm -hmm. So yes, it can be done at any, any level, in my opinion. Okay. Sounds like a really great way to help also build that community, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Students are hearing about each other, they're sharing with each other and they're getting to know each other in that circle. Yes. Thank you, thank you. Ms. Coleman. And how, what about you? What would you offer up for our teachers? Um, I would just look at it from a holistic perspective. I mean, first and foremost, it takes all stakeholders to ensure the academic achievement of the student. So I would, as a teacher, first and foremost, reach out to the parents to establish some type of relationship. 
because they're going to be your biggest asset throughout the course of the year. And I'm also speaking from the lens of someone working after school um, in the after school setting. I have to communicate with the parents frequently. And oftentimes the parents say, you know, Mrs. Coleman, I just need someone to talk to about my child's academic progression. Um, and so I think that's very vital for a teacher is just establishing an open line of communication with the parent, trying to um, come up with some common goals so that the children that the child can succeed at academic school year. And then inviting the parent to your classrooms, they can volunteer um, as well as providing any suggestions or any um, donations towards whatever curriculum costs you may have. So those were just some of the strengths that I had as a teacher when I was in the classroom is just I leaned heavily on my parents um, and they were very important assets throughout the course of the school year for me as a teacher. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the parents. We're gonna get a little bit, um, that's a great segue into the next yes. piece. But I want to ask you one uh, question. Um, in my years of working as a teacher, administration, I also noticed that there are some people who, because, you know, we're going to give it to you straight on this show. There are some folks who might be afraid of our, of our parents. Mm. How do you help folks to, I think, um, bring down that wall of fear to get to that place where they really can develop these relationships. Because like you mentioned, our parents are our, our, you know, best advocates. So what would you offer in terms of helping to eliminate some of the fear? So typically I would just use different methodologies in regards to communication. So sending out a newsletter, texting the parents, making myself available for them between specified hours. I was also gonna indicate um, letting them, and I guess selling to them the vision. And I always used to tell parents, I wanna see your kid win in life. And so if they know that you're coming from a sincere place, you're more likely to have great buy-in. And so it's just having that level of being genuine with the parent and the guardian making yourself accessible. Like, hey, I'm always available between these hours after school. You can always text me. Um, you can always email me. I'll respond within one or two business days. But for the most part, parents need to know that there's some buy-in. And once they know that someone has a genuine amount of love and care for their child, they are 99% more likely to work with you. I've never met one parent who was in opposition to anyone helping their kid. It's just that it's so rare for them to meet people that really want to pour a lot into their child. And so they just want to know, are you, are you there? Are you going to be caring, caring, have a caring attitude? Um, and are you also here for the long run? Right. So it's more so not just being here for the present school year, but guess what? You know, I, I tell a lot of my parents, uh, former parents, you know, don't just utilize my, me now during this period, but also reach out to me when your child is done with my classroom, you know, I can always do letters of references or things of that nature. I can give you additional resources to uh, that are out there in the community to better support your child, not just coming from my organization, but, you know, anything to help move your child forward. And that's what they need to know, that they have a partner. That's what parents are looking for, a community partner. I, you know, Dr. Reese, I would even, um, just to piggyback on that, we have educators that are afraid of the students mm. because they don't look like them. And so I would ask um, Ms. Towns, Mrs. Townsend and Mrs. 
Coleman, you know, how would you address that? How, as, as an educational leader, how would you address um, a teacher who is afraid of her students or who are unsure of how to teach them? I actually had a teacher when I was in AP at the high school. Um, she had a student, we had a student that was here from Mexico and he was here to get a surgery because he had a brain tumor. So he spoke very limited English. And then like, like you were saying, he was kind of just in her classroom and she wasn't really accustomed to teaching, you know, a student that had this situation. And so what it required for me was a lot of informal observations observing her interactions with the student. And then if she, and then kind of like what Ms. Coleman said, making myself accessible to her, you know, making her, um, making sure the teacher understood that I wasn't judging her and that I understand that this is a situation that's challenging, you know, for her. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of conversations with her, um, like he would say certain things and I was, you know, I would talk to her about you know, the cultural sensitivity of it and, you know, what are some other ways we could engage him or other ways that we could communicate with him. And it kind of demystified the whole thing, you know, when you just have, because sometimes teachers just want to talk it out, mm -hmm. you know, you just need a sounding board. So I think just helping them deconstruct and come up with strategies, but just reminding them that, no student is to be ostracized or marginalized in your classroom. There's always some way that we can reach that student. And, I, and like Ms. Coleman said, I'm here as your partner. So I think the same way that she, uh, Ms. Coleman was saying that we interact with our parents, we interact the same way with our teachers. I don't pretend as a school leader to come and know all the answers either. You know, I want to information gather and see what their classroom is like. I think that's the most important thing as a school leader is to make sure you have a good grasp of their, their class environment as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, we know that um, in many ways, our parents do need uh, support and we need their support um, while their child is in school, while we're teaching them. And so... Um, and this question is for both of you. Um, what would you offer our parents to help support their child um, in reading or literacy as they navigate the system, um, which is in the best interest of their children and themselves? And we'll start with uh, Mrs. Coleman. Um, I think that from my experience, a lot of times students can help close that achievement gap through structured after-school activities. Um, I've seen students who've had a two-year gap and once they've gone through tutorial support or high doses tutoring, they've been able to help close that gap. You know, I've seen a student who was a fifth grader functioning third grade in math. And then after eight weeks of intensive math tutorial support after school, when we did a benchmark assessment, he was able to get to end of fourth grade, early fifth grade. So I think that intervention um, outside the traditional setting uh, can really make a lasting impact. Not only that, but making sure that parents are educated on how to best support their children after school, right? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes we assume that parents know the tools, but sometimes they don't. It's just like, you have to teach them how to become better parents. You have to teach them how to access resources. You have to teach parents how to become advocates for their child. Um, I meet a lot of moms who 
are trying to figure out why their child is failing. You know, Ms. So-and-so, Mrs. Coleman, he, he's, you know, not thriving in math or reading. Well, here, let's, let's administer a baseline assessment, a diagnostic assessment to see where these deficits may lie. And that there lies in the problem that we have is just simple conversations, having an advocate in the community to have healthy conversations with these parents about this is what's happening. This is why this is happening. Let me provide you some resources. And if it's not my nonprofit that can do it, I can give you other resources outside of what we do to make sure that your child thrives. So I think it goes back to providing after-school support for students in a structured environment, teaching parents how to advocate for themselves, and also making sure parents have access to resources outside the school hours. Great, thank you. Mrs. Towson. Uh, just to piggyback on what Ms. Coleman was saying as well, one of the things too is um, understanding that education has changed. You know, they may not be, uh, we're not teaching math and reading the way we used to, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I get that a lot from parents. Yes, yes. This and how am I supposed to, you know, like all of that. So I think um, exactly what, what uh, she, you know, what Ms. Coleman just said, I think really um, showing parents what resources they have um, and what things that, that the kids can do on their own, you know, uh -huh, um, uh -huh. as, as enrichment, but really uh, tapping into those resources and making sure that they understand the importance of literacy, you know, the importance of the child sitting down every day for at least 20 minutes and reading a high interest book that they want to read, you know, not forcing them to read, you know, Pride and Prejudice or something like that, but something that they enjoy reading and then being an active participant in that reading. Uh -huh. So it can be something as simple as the five W's, the who, what, when, where, why, once they've read for 20 minutes. And then you can just ask them a reflective, well, what did you think about? Would you have done that? Would you have opened the door when he said da da da? You know, just, and then that that just builds that bond. And then like Ms. Coleman was saying, you kind of, you yourself self-kind of get an idea of where your child is. So uh -huh. it's, it's not as much of a shock when you hear from the teacher that they're struggling with. Because I've heard parents say, yeah, I noticed we struggle with comprehension at home when he's reading. Or So I think as much communication as possible and, and extending those, re, you know, extending um, those suggestions of resources is really important. Uh -huh. Okay. All right. So now, and we also know that at the end of the school day, children don't often just, you know, volunteer what happened at school, unless it was just something really exciting, you know, that happened and, and, and they want to share. And, you know, I know sometimes um, when I ask, you know, how was school? Oh, it's okay. Well, what did you learn today? Nothing. Well, you know, I know that's not true. <laughs> you learned something. So um, how would you all approach uh, or, or what, um, what uh, tools or questions would you give parents to help them uh, facilitate a conversation with their children about school or the, a particular or, or the school day? Um, my mind just totally went blank, but I remember there was a document that I had someone sent me. It was like 23 questions to ask your child after school. Um, I wish I could tap into that right now, but I can't. 
<laughs> but I'm just going to go off a personal experience. I'm a mom first, teacher second. I have two boys, 17, 13. So when I think back to the conversations I had when I used to pick, well, picking up my son, my oldest son in particular, I would always ask, how, how was your day? Was it, um, no, what did you do to create a productive day? We talk a lot about productivity, and what that means and what that entails. Um, and so he would tell me all the things and I would say, okay, um, what were some of the goals that you had for that day? We would talk about goal setting. So I think taking my experience and kind of making it applicable for other parents, perhaps it's teaching your children how to do effective goal setting prior to the school year, but actually beginning of the onset of the school year, right? Talk about some goals, create vision boards. Um, and then when you're having these healthy conversations with your children, it's tapping into what you guys started at the beginning of the school year. All right, let's talk about your goals. What are some things you did to um, make sure that you accomplished that particular goal? Or what is something that you did that you feel like filled your bucket? I'm always thinking big picture mm -hmm. um, because it's more than just focusing on the minute. With a child, I think you have to help them get to that fit, that finite goal of where they need to be um, at the end of the semester, the end of the school year, and as they transition to the next school year. So I think just thinking big picture, learning how to establish um, goals, goals, growth setting, um, as well as making sure that you talk a lot about productivity. Because oftentimes I feel like that word is not used enough in our community. Mm -hmm. um, what does it mean to be productive? What are we, I, I, my youngest son, I always ask him, what skill set are we cultivating today so that we can become productive, uh -huh. right? So I think we need to use that vocabulary. We need to also really push towards that so that we can become more, have, have children that become more productive students as comparable to students who just go through school, go through life and that's it, uh -huh. right, right, right. I love that. I love that a lot. Um, really helping to bring the kid, the children into the real conversation, right? Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it really is about them and where they hope to go. Mm -hmm. And um, I ran across something recently where it talks about um, the idea that schooling is really about all learning all kinds of things and that there's knowledge in everything that we do. It's not just reading, writing, arithmetic for the sake of just reading, writing, arithmetic. It's mm -hmm. like what you do with what you're learning with reading and what you do with the numbers and how does that affect the world around you, right? So math is all around us. And then how do we talk about that in our classrooms? And how do we get kids to talk about that in the classroom as well as at home as you know as well so miss Townsend I didn't want to take any time from you <laughs> I see you it looks like you're you're like ready to go you want to say it so go ahead and share with us what are your thoughts um yeah that that is something that I even do when they're doing their foundational reading you know any assessment <clears throat> excuse me any assessment and I will say it's high stakes because we do have to answer for it, you know, at three times a year. Uh -huh. But any assessment that they take, we we um, set a goal. So I showed them, you know, the breakdown of all of the different tiers and then 
they look at where they are and where they think they can be. And then what are the things they are gonna do in order to get there? So it does become a, con a conversation. And I, I believe that does play into their growth mindset of having agency and the outcome. Um, you know, your effort, you know, what is the effort that you want to put in? And if you don't know what to do, how can you use resources to find out what it is you can do? So they really enjoyed that. And I was really surprised when you show them their score and they're just glued to, you know, oh, so that's, oh, okay. So I need, oh, okay. And they're really into it. And I think they appreciate being a part of that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's that buy-in. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Here's a question that I have for you. Um, we earlier spoke a little bit about, you know, the uh, what we saw with the pandemic and coming back from that. And one of the things that I noticed when we moved into it, especially within our within the district um, in Los Angeles, that we had we struggled a little bit with the tech piece. And making sure that we could, you know, that all kids were able to utilize technology in an instructional way. So how do you see technology? Uh, we, we can't get rid of it, right? You know, sometimes parents are like, they're just glued to that, you know, that phone and that this and that, the other. So it's not going anywhere. So where do you see technology in terms of literacy and reading and how do we best utilize that with our students, especially our black and brown kids? I don't think we run away from technology. I think we embrace it and we find a way to incorporate it into instructional practices, also in an after-school setting. And I'm going to keep referring to after-school setting because that's like the, the territory, you know, the area that I work. Um, I know for the fall term, we, well, the past couple of years, we had utilized iReady prior to the district utilizing it. We were using it for um, progress monitoring, as well as just to assess where a student was for math and reading. And that was the measurement tool that we used to communicate with our parents about where their child was. Well, we felt like last year, the students had plateaued with that program. So we pivoted this year. And so in the fall, we're gonna incorporate a new technological program called Reading Eggs, as well as iXL. Um, and these are two softwares that I feel through research are gonna make a huge impact, particularly with our students, since we serve 99% African-American students. I think it's gonna make a huge impact with reading, uh, particularly the six domains of reading. Um, and I think it's gonna make reading in a fun, interactive way, as well as competitive. Uh, it allows the students to compete against each other in the completion of lessons. It allows students to be rewarded for their diligence, as well as accumulating eggs for lessons completed. So I feel like students need access to competitive activities. They need access to fun, engaging uh, systems to motivate them to want to be in, engaged in reading. Because like I said, we did iReady for years. The students nap last year we, when we would mention it, they're like, oh, come on, Ms. Coleman. We got to do iReady again. <laughs> so I just feel like you have to diversify it. You got to do thorough research on new programs that may really kind of provide some excitement for the students. And then embrace technology in a great way, whether it be through accessing software, whether it be through showing students how to do coding um, or robotics. I know this summer we did some robotics classes. We also last, some, last year we hired a 
a video game designer and he used technology to teach the students how to build their own video games, right? So, because I believe in productivity, mm-hmm. like you know, do something, this needs to yield something at the end result. Mm-hmm. So I think embracing technology and all of its fidelity is going to be so impactful for the students, not just for today, but also in the long run. Mm-hmm. And then can you touch on, because I know um, in the information that I have on you that you also have like a film academy. Yes. So tell us a little bit about that. Gladly. So (laughs) I can sell my program. So uh, let's see. Uh, My husband's in television and film. Uh, He's actually a trustee for Directors Good of America. Uh, And he decided to take some years off during COVID to kind of work at the academy. And he started this program called Urban Scholar Film Academy. And basically he works with high school students on Saturdays between October through June. And he teaches them the whole film, film process from pre-production to production to post-production. And during that process, students learn to make short films. They learn to do make commercials, documentaries. Um, he also brings in industry professionals to kind of help spearhead that process. And so this is, will be our third year this fall. Uh, generally it's about a cohort of about 12 to 15 students. Um, and we also partner with Faithful Central Bible Church, where they host the screenings of the student products once they're done. So this has just been phenomenally great. We're super excited about the future of Urban Scholar Film Academy. We have some new partnerships coming along that I can't really talk about yet. <laughs> but um, that is, yes, that's one way that you can incorporate technology in that capacity. Wonderful. And I would awesome. imagine that for those older students, right, you're talking about the high schoolers, mm-hmm. you know, what a great way to ensure and to build upon that literacy as well, that reading, right? Mm-hmm. Talking about scripts and, and yes. all of that. So thank you. Yes, yes. Doing a great job. We appreciate that. You're welcome. Ms. Townsend, what are your thoughts about technology, especially for our younger students as well? So um, the utilizing technology uh, in my classroom, um, I utilize it for teaching typing. So we're looking at college and career readiness. So teaching typing with the proper hand positioning. So we're doing that. Um, Also getting them used to um, responding to things on the computers. They might read an article and then they have to respond using the the uh, keyboard and all of its um, different um, ways that you can respond, cut, paste, highlight, you know, using that to cite your um, evidence for your, your questions that you've been asked. Um, I do also do coding. They uh, do that. They do Google slideshows. Um, one of the things I incorporate is the Google Hour where they um, document their journey, uh, researching something that they're passionate about, and they have to, um, they have to create a presentation at the end of that and share it with the class. And that's done on, you know, on the, um, their iPads. Um, So those are just some of the ways. And then also we do utilize iReady. I don't have the luxury of not using it. So, but we do use it. We make it work. But, um, but iReady, one of the things I do with iReady is, um, I make myself available if they need assistance. But what I say to them is you must try, give an answer first and try it, then come to me and explain to me why you gave that answer. Um, I'm not here to do the fourth grade over. So you come (laughs) and show me what was your answer, why you selected that answer. And then, so I also use iReady as kind of like a growth mindset thing for perseverance. Mm -hmm. 
Um, a lot of them, when we go back to COVID, um, a lot of um, social emotional uh, growth, um, uh, working on that is needed. There's a lot of, um, you know, just, just very emotional when they can't get things or they don't understand things and uh, just just the morale, you know, building up morale as well. Wow, thank you for that. Uh, awesome. Yes, yes. And so, then, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> go on, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that we mentioned that um, you all both are um, really into culturally responsive uh, pedagogy. And so we know that that um, helps build reading skills with our students. Um, I'm gonna start with uh, Mrs. Townsend. Can you share what it means to be culturally responsive? And what does it look like uh, in your classroom, meaning, what would you specifically do to support literacy that is culturally responsive? So culturally responsive means um, that it's responsive to their culture. No, I'm just kidding. No, but um, culturally <laughs> responsive. No, no, but really, um, no. But what it means is that they should, it's like what Dr. Reed said also, they see themselves in the classroom. So I, anytime we do something, everyone's work goes up. Oh, Everybody's. Oh. And so, because, you, you know, you do have parents come in or family members come in or friends come in. And the first thing they want to do is show their work. Look what I did. Look what we did. And I don't want a student to have where theirs isn't up because I chose five, you know, students or whatever. So they need to be able to see themselves in the classroom. The other thing I do is um, we have a like in those community circles, we have a lot of discussions in class as it pertains to the curriculum. And if I find that they're really interested in something like for, you know, for instance, my class is very, very, very interested in civil rights the mm. civil rights movement, Martin mm. King, you know, all of that. If I find that that's what they're into, then I will, um, hey, like Dr. Like Dr. Coleman, Ms. Coleman said, we pivot. Okay, mm -hmm. instead mm -hmm. of doing this, I'm going to bring in articles about that. And we're going to do our writing based on this content as opposed mm -hmm. to whatever I had planned because it needs to be student directed. Mm -hmm. And um, so everything will, will, you know, revolve, not everything, but as much as I can revolve around those things that they're highly interested in. That's a reflection, especially things that help them understand what's happening to them on a daily basis. Like we were reading a novel and it was took place in the Jim Crow era and they weren't aware of you know Jim Crow and segregation and racism. And I remember one of the students, she goes, oh, so that's why so-and-so was making fun of my hair. That's why so-and-so said that about my skin color. So oh, just anything, wow. anything that can inform their experience and help them make sense of their world and invite them to do further research. Because if they ask a question, I'll say, well, I don't know. Why don't you look that up for us and share it with us? Uh -huh. okay. And you know, uh -huh. they're all, you know, they're becoming historians, researchers, because they want to, they want the the information. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah I, I, I like that because I think it's important that students, um, connect their learning with the real world 
because you know oftentimes students learn things and they don't know why they don't right. see the importance of it but when it's connected then yeah that works so mrs coleman how how um would you share um with parents how they could support their child at home uh, with any kind of culturally responsive um literature uh in their in their home well first off it's just uh talking to the parents letting them know they need to teach their child that culture and history is a child's superpower and so they need to lean into this notion that once students have this depth of knowledge about where they come from and who they come from then that is something that could propel them to achieve academic achievement um i was going to say one thing that we do at the academy is well first of all when you walk into the space we've designed it in such a way where everything is culturally relevant there's pictures uh of president obama there's pictures of african-american trailblazers I've always just had this notion that children need to see themselves in their learning environment. When we get um, donations of books from private individuals or foundations, they always ask, Ms. Coleman, what type of book titles? I send them a list of culturally relevant books. And so that is the list that we would prefer for students so they can see themselves in literacy. That's important. Um, additionally, we also try to embed within our day-to-day -day programs, we have a homework club program and on Tuesdays and Thursdays for about 10 minutes, we do decompression and the students also do community building circle. We ask students to share what's happening. We go over things about what's happening with the academy. We also go, at, we also go over affirmations. So I think it's not just doing these things at school, but it's also doing these things after school, as well as these are practices that you can incorporate at home. Um, you know, teaching your child how to have that self-esteem about learning to be proud of who they are and where they come from, making sure your child has access to culturally relevant books, titles that they could read, even if it's, you know, if you're traveling from going from one place to the next, taking that book with them, having them read during their spare time, um, as well as making sure your children have access to engaging enrichment activities, not just on uh, during the school day, but also what are some activities they can be involved in that are culturally rich uh, on the weekend. So I think you have to create this holistic perspective. Um, and I think that that's gonna be more beneficial for a child in the long run is comparable to something short-term. Okay. Nice. All right. Thank you. <laughs> so we're actually coming to uh, the close to the end of our show. Uh, we wanna yes. of course thank you both for being here and joining us today and sharing such great information and insight. Um, I would love for my children, well, my, they're all grown now, but if they were so young, <laughs> I would have loved for them to be in your classrooms and, and attending the After School Urban Scholar Academy. Um, you guys are doing amazing work. Um, we really appreciate that. Excellent, excellent. So um, Mrs. Townsend, Mrs. Coleman, um, do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share with us before we part? And how we can increase our, uh, the academic excellence of our black and brown children. <laughs> it's such a big <laughs> day, just when I think I'm like, we're making a difference. I feel like the gap <laughs> keeps widening. Um, I think that 
closing the achievement gap is such a tall order. I don't think it's going to ever be accomplished overnight. I think it's going to take some time and it's going to really require all stakeholders to be involved, the parents, um, the school, um, family members in, involved in that child's life, in addition to businesses. Everyone is going to have to play a very pivotal role to really help um, African-American Latino children here in Los Angeles. Um, I know for myself, it gets very weary, the work that I do, because we're building and we're doing a lot of heavy lifting. But I know that it's making a small, it's making a difference. I'm not going to say small, it's making a difference. And we're going to continue to do what we can um, to support students after school. Um, my goal is, I just wish that we could have access to more funding so that we can ensure that there are urban scholar academies, not just on the corner of Van Ness and Manchester, but there's also urban scholar academies in all parts of Los Angeles because all students, regardless of their zip code, deserve equitable resources in their community. And so if we can shift dollars to that, I think that that would make a significant difference on how students perform academically in the classroom. And so I think that's my focus these next couple of years, is trying to secure additional funding so we can scale our model um, and try to put it in other neighborhoods so other students can have access to quality programming. Awesome. Awesome. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Mrs. Townsend. Um, so I would say from the perspective of a school leader uh, to always be um, cognizant of your school culture, always be present for parents, always um, listen to your teachers and, and try to have an understanding of the reality of what it's like to be in a classroom. I would say for teachers to, uh, the number one thing is to always come in um, cognizant, of, uh, cognizant of your own implicit bias mm. and always teach with intentionality and mm. never underestimate your students. Um, I had a little student and you would have thought, no. But I mean, this young man, even though he got in trouble all the time and this and that, he wanted to learn. He was extremely smart. But if you don't come in with that sense of humility, that sense of implicit bias, that sense of I can learn from children too, uh -huh. um, you're not going to be able to access them and give them, you know, what they need. And then I say as a parent to always, you know, same thing with a school leader, I think to always listen to your children and be responsive to whatever it is they're passionate about, and then work some way, like you were saying, uh, Ms. Paysinger, let them see the relevance of what's going on. And then what Ms. Coleman was saying about just your place in history, you know, this is you, one thing I always show the kids is the children's march video at the end of my civil rights unit to show them that that movement was led by children like you, you at your age have the power to change the world. So I think always in, in, in you know, just embedding that in them, embedding that in teachers and embedding that in school leaders that our children have that capacity to change the world and they can, but they just need someone to believe in them. Awesome. Awesome. Great way for us to end. Absolutely. I wanted to thank all of you for such a great show. I love the information. Your guests are absolutely wonderful in disseminating the information that is so 
necessary and so valuable to all parents across the state, the community, the city. Everyone needs to hear the information. So thank you very much. Thank you. And you have been listening to Educational Dialogue with Dr. Reese and Karen Paysinger right here on the Intentional Talk Radio Network. Thank you for listening on ytrnradio.com. Thank you for listening.